Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. If you're new to our church and you're just finding us, we study through books of the Bible. And today we're studying through the Bible book of John. We're in John chapter 11. And I'm just going to tell you, I wrestled with this passage this week. Not because I didn't understand what's going on. You just need to know that there are some times I get to a passage of scripture and as a preacher, I think to myself, man, I really don't want to talk about this this week. What I want to do is focus my attention on Jesus. And I wish I was one of those pastors that could just open up the Bible and then preach whatever I wanted after I read from the Bible, but I'm just not that kind of guy. So we're going to tackle a group of people in the Bible who absolutely miss it by a mile. And I don't want to talk about these people today, but this is where John is. And he's going to dwell on these religious leaders and how bad they miss who's standing in their midst. And maybe in the process, you'll hear something today that the Holy Spirit will use to speak to your heart. Because maybe... And I'm saying just maybe there's a little bit in your heart like there is in the heart of these guys in the Bible today. Before we even get into the scriptures, I'll tell you where we're going to go with this. As Christians, you and I, our goal in life, the whole purpose that God has left us here on planet Earth after he brought us out of our sin and called us his son or daughter, our whole goal in life is to live our life like Jesus. Would you agree? Say amen. The challenge is we live in a world that is not pushing us towards Jesus. It's pulling us away from Jesus, which means we have to work at our faith. We have to work hard to run after Jesus. That's the concept that I want you to hear today. And what you're going to see from the Bible today is it's really hard. In fact, it's impossible to run fast after Jesus or hard after Jesus if you're tied to dead religion and a dead faith. You're going to see some guys in the Bible. You can't miss this today. They're going to jump off of the page at you. It's just very obvious from this passage of Scripture that these guys absolutely miss by a mile or a kilometer, depending on where you live, who's standing right in front of them. And I believe one of the reasons that they miss it is because they're tied to this dead works-based religion, this dead faith, and it's holding them back. And I don't want that to be us. So there's basically three things that the Bible is going to describe today about these guys that they're holding on to that prevents them from running fast after Jesus or running hard after him. And this may be you, But maybe these three things aren't you. Here's the truth. It could be anything that gets in between you and Jesus. It doesn't even have to be a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing. And maybe for you, you're chasing after something that's really important in your life. Maybe it's a job promotion. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a God-given gift like food or sleep or sex. But if you're not careful, I can easily elevate that thing. You can put that thing in front of Jesus and it's going to become an obstacle 
to your faith. And these guys today put a few things in front of Jesus. And this is why they miss it by a mile. So I'm going to show you these three areas where these guys, these religious leaders, are tied to a dead faith. Literally, they have a dead soul. And there is something in between them and Jesus. And I just pray that today during this sermon, if the Holy Spirit shows you that there's something in your life in between you and Jesus, you'll do business with God about that thing today. The first challenge, and I'm going to tell you, I am one of the most anti-religious people you will ever meet because we can turn a dead religion into a set of rules that we hope is going to get us into heaven. And these guys put religion before a relationship with Jesus. It's really subtle and it's really easy to do. And if you're not careful, you will try to follow the rules, hoping that the rules will make God um, happy with you, hoping by following enough rules and doing it well enough, like if my good outweighs my bad, maybe God will let me into heaven. That is a lie straight from hell. It is a dead religion that will cause you to spend eternity separated with him. And this is what you see jumping off of the page at you in John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. We're going to pick the story up after Jesus just performs the miracle of all miracles and calls a dead man out of the tomb alive. And by the way, y'all, he did the exact same miracle for me at 13 years old when he called this dead soul back to life and he called me to himself. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he has done the same thing for you that he did for a guy by the name of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Here's how the story continues. Therefore, Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he, Jesus, did, believed in him. Mary and Martha, two sisters, had a brother named Lazarus. Jesus deliberately drug his feet and took too long when they told Jesus, my brother is sick, and Jesus shows up four days after he's dead, and he calls Lazarus out of the grave. And before he even does it, Jesus says, I waited so that God could be glorified and so that you could believe in who's standing in your midst. And the Bible tells us that when people saw Lazarus standing in the grocery store checkout line and they knew that he was dead just a few days ago, it was pretty obvious that this guy Jesus is who he claims to be. And so they believed in him. Some of them, but notice, not all of them. In fact, we have to deal with two categories of people right now. Some believed and they recognized Jesus as Savior and then some snitched on Jesus. And if you've been around our part of the United States, you probably know the rest of this phrase. What happens to snitches? Snitches get stitches. Okay, so listen to what happens next. But some of them went to the Pharisees and snitched on Jesus. They told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, pause, you need to know what this word Sanhedrin means 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel. These are the big boys in town, and this is the very rare occasions when all of the big boys in town get together in the same room for a very important reason. 
It's generally the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priest and the most religious and most powerful men in the, in the land come together in a giant council meeting. That council meeting is referred to as the Sanhedrin. And it's a little bit like the United States Supreme Court and the Congress and the president all meeting together to deliberate about something and come up with an answer together. That's what the Sanhedrin is. When Jesus raised Lazarus, when these snitches went and told the Pharisees, they called the Sanhedrin together and said, boys, we got a problem. Here's their answer. They called the San, they convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Just humor me for a second. Would you say the word sign out loud? John uses a very specific word here when he says signs. Now it's translated miracles. And I'm sitting there looking at what these guys are saying right now. And actually, they're not asking a question. It's rhetorical. They're basically saying, hey, do we all recognize that everybody is seeing the miracles? Everybody is believing and we got a problem now. They're basically saying everybody has seen these miracles and the miracles inevitably point to Jesus being Messiah. And now we, the religious leaders, have a problem. John intentionally uses the word sign on purpose here. Because for John, the miracles that Jesus does are a sign that he really is the son of God. And when I read this part of the Bible, I'm just floored right now. Because I'm looking at the question that they're asking and I'm thinking to myself, are you insane? You just saw Jesus, John chapter 5, heal a man who has been crippled for almost 40 years. And that guy is walking through the streets with perfectly healthy legs. You've just seen John chapter 9, Jesus heal a man who was born blind. We don't even believe God himself can do that, but Jesus has done that. Surely if the crippled man didn't convince you that he is the son of God, then maybe the blind man, that sign would convince you. And if that still doesn't work, you now see a man standing in your midst, Lazarus, who was dead, and Jesus just did this sign, and you still don't get it? How can you possibly miss it this bad? You've seen the sign of healing a crippled man, the sign of healing a blind man. You've seen the sign of bringing a man back from the dead, and you still can't recognize that those are signs that he is the Son of God? How could you possibly miss it that much? And the truth is, these guys have a dead soul. And they're hanging on to a dead religion. You see, there's a very fine line between sinner and saint. And what you're reading in John chapter 9 is the guys who walk around town acting like saints are really sinners. And the people around town who everybody thinks their sinners are really saints. And the difference is all a soul that has been made alive by Jesus Christ. And only by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what separates sinner from saint in John chapter 11. 
It's not your place in society. It's certainly not what you know and the, the good religious deeds that you do. It is all 100% a miracle of the living God who took this dead soul and made it alive and called this sinner to become a saint. And I say that because as believers, you and I should have this passionate desire to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to want to see more sinners become saints. That's why we're placing a challenge in front of everybody in Two Cities Church here in this room and at home. Will you invite one person who is really far from Jesus? Will you invite them to get plugged in with you this Easter, will you invite them to join with you in your life group? Because Jesus is all about, listen to this, leaving the 99 and going after the one who's really far away from him. Will you, Two Cities Church, take up the same challenge and go after that guy or gal that's religious, but really far from Jesus and invite them to get part of your life group or get connected with this church? Second thing you're going to see from this passage is why they're holding on to their power and their position so much. And I'm just going to warn you right now, what I say next may hurt a couple of people's feelings. It's not on purpose, but I just need you to know that sometimes you can even, even Christians can elevate our respect and our position in society above our relationship with Jesus. And what we're doing is the exact same thing that these Pharisees and religious leaders did when they elevated their position in society above Jesus. Look at what the Bible says next for us in verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who, spoiler alert, is going to play a big role in the rest of the book of John. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Basically, you guys are a bunch of morons. You are, or you're not considering that it is to your advantage. Notice the word right here. It's really intentional. It is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. I feel like I need to explain for just a second who Caiaphas is. And then I'll explain to you what he's saying. Caiaphas is the equivalent of president of the United States. If we lived in an occupied country, he would be the high priest, the one anointed by God to lead the nation spiritually. And because he's a high priest, he's now going to stand up during the Sanhedrin and he's going to make an, a, a proclamation for all of the religious guys in the room. And his proclamation literally translated says, Jesus not only should die, but Jesus will die for the nation. But notice, he doesn't just say the people living in Jerusalem right now. He says the nations, all of the people of God scattered all over the planet. Listen to what the Bible says next. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not the nation only, but also to untie the scattered children of God. I love that word untie because of the way that it fits with this sentence God's children scattered all over the planet. So from that day on, 
Look at this. They plotted to kill the Son of God, the promised Messiah. We got to get rid of him or else we're going to lose respect and we're going to lose power. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness. Thanks a lot, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now I can't even hang out in Jerusalem anymore. To a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Most people believe, I tend to agree with this, that Caiaphas is actually speaking, the Holy Spirit of God is speaking through Caiaphas, even though this man is probably wicked at the heart. The Holy Spirit is speaking and making a prophecy. And the prophecy is for all of the religious leaders in the room. Not only should Jesus die, but he will die. And his death is, listen to this, for the nations. When farmers in Jesus' day went out into a field, they didn't have the equipment that we have today, so they turned the ground up and they scattered seed all over the field, and they were hoping and praying that when God sends the rain and the seed goes into the ground, that the seed would die and out of it would come a crop. That's the word scattered that John just used. And when they scattered the wheat fields... And it was time to bring the crop in. They would bring the wheat together in bundles and they would tie those bundles up. And it made it easier to carry the bundles into the barn where they could turn that wheat into flour. And what John is saying, and the language is absolutely spectacular here, is that God has scattered his people all over the nations and Jesus is going to bring them in and he's going to untie them. And he's going to set them free. He's going to set them free for their sin. He's going to set them free from their past. He's going to set them free from that dead religion and all of those things that are holding on to their heart. And you just missed a great chance to say hallelujah or amen. You see, God has scattered his people and they're all over the planet. And he's left his church here on earth to go get them and to bring them in and to set them free. And when you see that video playing at the beginning of our service that shows our core values, it is very, very important that you understand Two Cities Church is passionate about living free. And when we say live free, we mean living free from dead religious rules of saying, do this and don't do that if you're going to be a good girl or if you want God to call you a good boy. Those kind of rules don't get you into heaven. No, we believe that God has called us into a relationship with him and Jesus has untied us and set us free from those dead religious rules. Now prepare yourself because this may hurt a little bit. Anybody in the room or at home seen the documentary called The Social Dilemma? Raise your hand. Okay, if you're raising your hand at home, I can't see you. But if you've seen the documentary, Social Dilemma, it describes what social media is doing to the world. And some of the brightest minds, some of the originators of the social media platforms are taking a step back and saying, wow, we never expected this to happen. We didn't want this to happen. This is not what we built. And it shows how social media is distorting and in some cases hurting society 
at a big level. And what social media is doing is just putting on display what's already happening inside the human heart. What the social dilemma is saying is the engineers that created these platforms didn't create them to do what they're doing. The sin and the struggle in our heart did this. And I'm now talking about the Christian who spends more time worried about the people on social media and what they think about them than worried about the glory of God. I'm talking about the guy or the gal that spends more time concerned about the grade my professor gave me or worried about what my boss thinks about me. It's not that you shouldn't work hard in school. It's not that you shouldn't do your best for your boss, but I'm talking about turning those things into a false God. They become an idol when they are more important to you than the glory of God and your relationship with Jesus. And I feel it in my heart. I hope you feel it in your heart too. My heart is so twisted. Sin has has twisted my heart so much that I can even take a good thing like respect and I can elevate it into the ultimate thing. And I care more about what people think about me on the internet than what they think about Jesus. And when I've done that, I've just created an idol and I've just started following in the footsteps of this, these religious leaders. And I don't know if this is only me, but maybe you feel this struggle too. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help me put these things back in their proper place because nothing and no one should be more important to me than what the rest of the world thinks about Jesus, my King. Which brings up the third and the final thing that you're going to see as we end John chapter 11. These guys started to elevate religious rituals. And the rituals became more important than the very reason for those rituals in the first place. Warning, Two Cities Church, we're two years old, and today when this service ends, we're going to practice a ritual, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with rituals. They're very, very powerful, but they can be powerful for good in your life, or they can be powerful for bad in your life. We're going to practice the ritual of communion, which ties directly back to the Old Testament practice of Passover, Jesus's act of Passover. But if you're not careful, this ritual can get in your way and just become a dead routine that you do out of obligation. And if that's all that it is, it's lost all of its power. It's lost all of its significance. Look at what the ritual of Passover becomes. And John chapter 11. Now the Jewish Passover was near. And many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before Passover. Because in Jesus' day, during Passover time, you were obligated to stop what you were doing and make a spiritual pilgrimage to the capital city of Jerusalem. Before you could take the Passover meal, what we will do in just a few moments of communion or the Lord's Supper, before you could do that, you had to ceremonially purify yourself. And People were coming to Jerusalem. They were making this pil- the pilgrimage. They were purifying themselves. And the Jewish leaders are now going to use this as the perfect opportunity to seize Jesus, arrest him, and kill him. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before Passover. That should have been a very good thing. They were looking for Jesus 
and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? And now we see how the Jewish leaders distort this ritual and turn it into a very bad thing. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it to them so that they could arrest him and they could kill Jesus. They basically used the crowd as an opportunity to put out an all points bulletin, an APB for Jesus. Like if you see him immediately come tell us so that we can send the police to go arrest him because we need to get rid of this guy who can heal the crippled, who can return sight from to the blind, who can make the dead come back to life. We got to get rid of this guy because he's ruining our religion. And so they basically tell everybody in Jerusalem, if you see him, come find us and come report back to us. I'll just spoil what you're going to read in the future in the Gospel of John. One of Jesus' own people decide, I can make some money by turning him in and by handing him over to these religious leaders. I can get rich selling out my boss and turning over the Son of God and betraying him to the religious leaders. This dead religious, this doesn't have to be a dead religious ritual, but they use this religious ritual as an opportunity to twist the hearts and the minds of God's people. What we're going to do in just a second is a very powerful act that reminds us of Jesus's last meal on earth. When he sat down with his disciples and he broke some bread and he said to them, guys, this isn't just Passover bread. When we think back to God rescuing the nation of Israel from Egypt through this very powerful and very brutally deadly plague of the death of the firstborn, this isn't just unleavened bread that we're breaking. The bread that God gives to rescue you back from your sin is actually my body. And then he took a cup and he passed it around and he said, guys, this isn't just wine. And this represents my blood. The only human being who's never sinned in a lifetime, who doesn't deserve the penalty of sin, he says, this is my blood that will be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. And then he passes the cup around. And after he has this last supper with his disciples, he gets up and he goes to a garden to pray. And he says, God, I don't want to do this. God, I know it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful, but not my will. Your will be done. And then the son of God walks into his enemy's hands and gives his life over in exchange for me and you. And in just a moment, as a church, when we come to the Lord's table, I want to challenge you like the Bible challenges you. 1 Corinthians 11, don't do this lightly. Get serious with Jesus about your relationship. Make sure that things are right between you and him. And if they're not, it's okay to abstain. Just take a break this week and we'll do this again in a few weeks. And maybe in a few weeks, you should take communion. Jesus says, hey, if you come to the temple and you're about to present your offering and there's some weirdness between you and one of your brothers, don't present your offering. Go fix the weirdness between you and your brother. Then come back and present the offering. And maybe you're sitting there right now and you know that there's something that's not right between you and another believer. Maybe what you need to do today is skip it and go get that area of your life right. And then in a couple of weeks, when we do this again, you come and take communion. I want this to be very powerful for God's people. 
Because it's our way of looking back and remembering I am completely helpless. I can't be good enough and religion cannot get me into heaven. So God came and he sent his son Jesus to rescue me and to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. But listen, y'all, this isn't just looking back to 2,000 years ago. This is us reminding ourselves of the promise that one of these days, God will call his children out of the grave, every one of us, and we'll sit at a table in his presence, in his kingdom, and we'll have this meal again. Because Jesus says, I'm not going to do this Passover meal with you again until I do it with you in my father's kingdom. We look back and we remember, but we look forward and we rejoice because one of these days, I'll do it with the king of kings and I'll do it face to face. So let me place a couple of challenges in front of you. We call them next steps around here. And then let me pray. And I want you to prepare your heart for this ritual of communion, this good, powerful ritual of communion that we're going to do in just a second. Maybe somebody has watched this broadcast today and you've said, man, I got a dead soul and I can't fix it. I can't be good enough. I can't be religious enough, which means pray or read my Bible enough to make my soul come alive. I need Jesus to call this dead soul to life again. And maybe what you need is for God to do the same miracle for you that he did for me, that he did for Lazarus and give you new life or make you born again in just a second. We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.